We're going to read some scripture. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to do our scripture reading and then you can sit on down. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's God's Word. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. pray again before I preach. Father, we again just come before you. I just ask for your help this morning. I just ask that all who listen would, would receive the things that are true, the things that are of, of you, um, things that are not. Again, I just ask that it would just go away and be gone from their mind. Father, would you help us today to receive what you have to say to us? Help us um, not just to affirm our own biases, um, but to really hear what you have to say. God, may we um, repent where we need to repent from, and may our attitudes be loving toward one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we know, one of the greatest values that we have in our country is freedom, right? America, freedom, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We just celebrated Memorial Day where we remembered those who died for freedom. And the freedom that we have is an absolutely wonderful gift that we should not take for granted 
at all in our country. And as Americans, we have personal liberty that far exceeds much of human history. So much more than any other land right now. And also think of all of human history before. What a gift it can be. But we need to remember always that our first identity is not Americans. That as Christians, that is not our primary identity. Of course, that's a part of who we are. Of course, we value some of those things. But our primary identity is that we are Christians. That we are people who follow King Jesus. That our allegiance is to a king. Which, of course, we think theocracy, things like that. Wow, we actually have allegiance to a king that has power and authority over our lives. But that this king was a sacrificial, loving Lord. And so we, as Christians, have renounced, repented of allegiances to any other God or way of life or philosophy or therapy or government system or anything else that would compete with Him as King and Lord. That He has freed us to live according to His rule, to live according to His reign, according to His kingdom values. And so this means that our view of Christian freedom is never to combine worship with anything else, ever, without exception. As if we can somehow mix Jesus worship with pagan worship or with any other kind of worship, the worship of self. And that it's never to take the place of elevating personal rights of the individual over love for one another. That's what Christianity is. And that's what Christianity is to be. We worship Jesus alone. And we are called to walk in His ways, according to His model, His example. Namely, what did He do? He sacrificed personal rights by sacrificial love. So, if I have a title, it's Love Trumps Rights. Love Trumps Rights. Do you believe that? And again, not just do you believe that in your head, but do you walk according to that? And of course, the answer is, well, no, I don't always do, which is why I need a Savior. But we are called as Christians to, at our very core, see that love is first, that love is supreme. And also that our minds need to read this text. We have to kind of go backwards. We don't just read this through an American view. We have to kind of go back to Greek culture, go back to the Roman Empire, back in Corinth to at first see what's going on. Because again, that's what can affirm what we do or can critique what we do. We have to see first what is Paul saying to the original audience. This is one of the first rules of what they call interpretation hermeneutics in Bible study. I shouldn't be carrying the things that I necessarily think or believe and then go read the Bible. I have to read the Bible for what it says to its original audience and then make the application from that. So, we have to kind of go back. One of the issues of Paul's day, again, is way different than ours. That they had pagan temples, the worship of idols, 
meat and meal making in rituals to those idols. And so one of the big issues of their day was how does the Christian handle day-to-day life when social life, when relationships revolve around idol worship all the time at the various shrines that are throughout the city. And so, yes, do we have idolatry in our day and age? Yes, but first let's try to just wrap our minds around what is happening here. That that's not our issue right now. We're not just talking about, well, man, should I, should I eat meat sacrificed to idols today? You know, that's just not even on our radar. But again, it would be big deal on their radar. So I'm going to read a quote on this. And it's kind of long, but I think it will help us kind of see what was going on there. This is from one New Testament scholar. The celebrations of many cults were closely bound up with civic and social life since religion and politics were indivisible in ancient Hellenistic city life. Okay, Again, fancy words. Hellenism, Greek-speaking life. They celebrate. They have civic participation, social life. Religion and politics are not compartmentalized. They are together. Let me keep reading. If Christians took part in civic life, they would have been expected to participate in festival sacrificial meals in some form or another. The imperial cult, which frequently combined statecraft with stagecraft, was especially important to Corinthian citizens, and sacrifices were part of the Isthmian Games. Winter, this is another scholar, concludes, overconfident and weak Christians alike were in danger. Such was the power of privilege and the importance of the imperial cult and more so when it was established on a federal basis and celebrated in Corinth. Again, I'm going to keep going. Individuals who shared the same trades, trades like work, what they did, or a desire to worship specific gods banded together in voluntary associations, clubs, guilds. Many joined them for social reasons, a sacrifice to a god, an occasional meal, a drinking party, an exchange of different political views, or a confirmation of shared ones. In the Latin West, the poor formed funeral societies to celebrate a patron's memory and contributed to a common fund to ensure that they would receive a proper burial. These associations served religious, social, commercial ends. Some met in dining rooms attached to major civic temples or their clubhouses might bear the name of a divinity. While the social and economic facets of associations became increasingly important, Borgen notes that religious activities always played a role at such gatherings. This religious link explains why Philo vigorously opposed Jews joining these associations because the lifestyle was characterized by gluttony, indulgence, and necessitated not only breaking Jewish dietary laws, but eating idolatrous foods. I'm almost done. Individuals might also receive invitations to a banquet at a temple since rooms could be rented out for private functions like church halls today. Extant papyrus invitations beckon guests to attend banquets in a temple dining room commemorating a variety of rites of passage, weddings, childbirth, birthdays, coming-of-age parties, election victories, and funerals. Others were more overtly cultic feasts celebrating, for example, a god's birthday. The religious and social functions were indissolubly bound together. The god or gods were honored by the meal and were conceived as present. Social meals and temples could not be purely secular or only nominally connected to idolatry since religious elements were involved. Then he goes on. So what's the point? The point is, at that time during that day, 
that was just a part of the way that life was. You go, you have your meal, you have your celebration, religion, um, relationships all tied together, often in sacrifice, in honor of particular gods, particular goddesses. So Christians try to figure out, well, wait, well, how do we do life in this kind of world, in this kind of context? And so what happens here is we end up having a big debate on this. And I've got to be honest with you, this is probably one of the hardest ones that I've wrestled with and don't exactly know where I come down on. I'm just going to be up front. But the way that I'm currently understanding this particular passage, and I'm going to try to show you why, is that sometimes we take this, and if you've been a Christian for a while and you're familiar with Romans 14, issues like weak and strong and all that, as kind of a dialogue between Christian freedom on things that aren't that important. But there's another way of reading this text, which is actually talking about that food offered to idols in general is off limits all the time for any Christian no matter what. Because we do not mix idolatry and Christianity. So it's likely that Paul here is actually confronting certain people that are flaunting their freedom. And again, this might fit the overall context. Remember, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians now for quite a while. What kind of problems do we have going on here? We have spiritual elitists. People that think they know a whole lot or identifying with certain political factions or those who are kind of flaunting their sexual freedom, prostitution, sexual immorality. Not a big deal. We can kind of do that. So it could be that Paul is actually confronting these people that think they are strong and they're actually not. And in this first passage, he kind of takes a back-end route to confront them on the issue of love. But later, two chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul identifies the same issue. So for a few chapters, he's talking about this issue. Even when he gets into the next chapter, he's going to defend his apostleship. Hey, what do I do as an apostle? And what does he do? He lays down his rights. And so in, in 1 Corinthians 10... Paul ends up saying, you know what? You can't mix demons and the meal of the Lord's Supper. So, there is this problem of in their culture of them saying, oh no, we can go participate in all this idol worship and then we can just come back and enjoy the Lord's Supper. It's good. It's not a big deal. And Paul is basically saying, no, idolatry is always wrong, period, end of story. Kind of like what he did with sexual immorality. Always wrong. Period. End of story. So, it could be that what he's after here is actually dealing with a first order issue. This is a major thing. In, as Christians, we have different, what I might call, sets of beliefs, so to speak. Some people speak of it in three different terms. It's kind of like a first order issue. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus died as our substitute of atonement. He's how we are made right with God. We don't get to mix that at all. You mix and mess with that, you've rejected Christianity. It's not like, oh, well, we can all just kind of get together and get along and tolerate all those kind of views. No false wrong. It is prohibited. You cannot mess with a first order issue. Then there's kind of like second issues. Things like, well, what do we do about, um, um, let's say, an issue of, of women in the pastorate? 
that are going to affect the way in which you do church life in a particular church community and is going to have a big effect, but, it, but there's going to be different interpretations where Christians might disagree strongly, but it's not like, oh, that person is not a Christian. Then there's kind of like third order issues, more of, well, what do we do? What kind of movies do we watch? Do we, do we, do we drink a beer? Do we not drink a beer? Um, what kind of music do we listen to? Like all those kind of things. You might have um, different groups of Christians on that. Okay. So, all that to say, but what Paul is probably going after here is that he is actually saying all food sacrificed to idols in that format is always wrong because it is idolatry. That it actually goes into a first order issue. But there is another view that says, nope, this is all just kind of doing that classic weak and strong stuff that Paul does in Romans chapter 14 on issues of Christian liberty. So one reading is saying the weak and the strong is kind of a Christian freedom issue. You've got the weak Christians and the, and, and the strong Christians that can go and do that and do it all the time and it's no big deal. Um, or you have this other view that I am offering is that actually... Meat, sacrifice to idols, and participating in any kind of cultic worship is wrong, period, no matter what, because it's idolatry. And so what Paul is confronting here is saying, oh, you people that kind of think you're strong, yeah, you're that group that I've been confronting all along the way throughout the passage. And you think your other person is weak. Um, but the real issue is you should never be participating in meat that has been involved in sacrificing to idols when it's involved in the worship of the temple. So again, I told you this was going to kind of be thing. We kind of got to pause for a second, wrap our minds around the way that this is working, then I'm going to start to walk through this. I want to mention one other thing before I do. When you think about the Bible, there's another three sets when it addresses this kind of issue. There's a first set is the meals that are happening in the temples. Like you actually go to the temple where they're sacrificing to the idol and they're blocking up chunks of meat and passing them around to the idol and then they're eating it around in the temple that that itself is false worship. But then there's, but what about the food in the marketplace? What do I do there? I got to go get my food. What about all the different food and drink and things that are being sold? Well, that's a slightly different issue. Well, what about when I'm in the home of a person? that's serving meat. Then what do I do? That's a different issue. And he's going to address those even more in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, but those are, again, how do I do this in life? This is all happening in social life, in the temple, and then some of that stuff is getting out into when I'm going to the store to eat food. And then what do I do when I'm at my unbelieving friend's house or my other Christian's house? So you see, that's kind of what's happening here. And, and our minds go, Wait, this is not what I'm dealing with on an everyday basis. So, that's the, that's the setting. Now, enough of me. Let's read what it says. Those first three verses. Now, concerning food offered to idols. He uses this kind of address a lot. Like he said, uh, now, um, in chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, Paul has continually been in dialogue with Corinth. There's probably other letters that have been floating around back and forth. And he right here is saying, now we're turning to a new issue. Now concerning this issue of, of food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
And so what Paul does in these first three verses is really go after the fact that the Christian life is Christian love over Christian freedom and Christian knowledge. That what can knowledge do? Knowledge can inflate. And especially in this group, remember, they're thinking they kind of got the spiritual inside knowledge. There's kind of this group that's really got it and this other group of Christians that don't have it. Paul's like, no, that's not the way the gospel works. Christ is, Christ is all. He is the point. And so he's kind of showing, hey, you know what? Knowledge inflates, can cause pride, but love builds up. So Christian maturity comes not from just knowing a ton of things or honestly even getting up and being able to preach some sermon. That doesn't mean that you're a mature Christian. You might know in an attitude that is arrogant. And so Christian maturity is founded on love, not knowledge. And also we see here that knowledge is always partial. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So and I'm like, oh, well, that's actually encouraging to me for this text. <laughs> because it doesn't mean that I got it all figured out. All of us have partial knowledge until we get to heaven. And even that, we're probably going to even be increasing and growing in knowledge and love and joy and everything else. But we see dimly. That doesn't mean that we make an excuse for, oh, knowledge doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that there's a, there can be a danger here where, where your knowledge of things can kind of puff you up and help you look down at other people. This can happen with doctrine. This can happen with Bible reading. This can happen with attitudes towards other people. And Paul is really pushing on this. Your knowledge is partial. It's not full. And then he says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And that's kind of an interesting switch because he goes into love. Saying, hey, if any of you love Jesus and you're saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. It's not that if anyone loves God, he knows God. He doesn't say that. We would kind of expect him to say something like that. Hey, if you're loving, you're going to know God. But he actually flips it, is known by God. And this again is that priority of grace in the life of the Christian, which, of course, is what all of this is about, being gracious toward one another. But he's saying, hey, you know what? It's not just that, oh, I love Jesus. I chose Jesus. I made a decision for Jesus. That isn't the, all that can be true, but that's not the most important thing about you. Not your self-determining power to be a Christian, but that God's action is always first. Divine grace is always first. It's not that, oh, we know so much about God. It's not that God knows you. That He knew you. And when you tie this to the Old Testament, He talks about, why did I choose Israel? Why did I choose Israel? Well, it's because I foreloved them. I foreknew them. I chose them because I chose them. Not because they were great. Not because they were better than the other nations. I know you. I love you. And knowledge in the Bible is an intimate relationship. So when he's saying you've been known by God, and it's, oh yeah, well God kind of knows about you. He knows you, BJ, and Jared, and Bob, and Ron. He just kind of knows that you exist. No, he's saying, no, as a Christian, he, he knows you intimately. He has known you. Even before you knew anything, he knew you. So this is the priority of grace on the Christian life. It's not so much you knowing God as about God knowing you for loving you, choosing you, calling you, the grace of God. And that is good news. 
And isn't that amazing that He knows you and He doesn't go... But He knows all about you. He knows every part of you. Every sin. Every shame. Things that no other person knows. He says, you know what? If you love me, if you've trusted me, guess what? The only reason why I even do that is that it goes back into eternal history past of the Godhead and that He knew you first. And He loves you. So don't get so hung up on everything else going on in your life. Man, what an encouraging reality that is. That as Christians, we are known by God. It also kills arrogance again. So don't be arrogant toward all the unbelievers in the world or all your social life and act as if, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm the in one. Well, you're in because God put you in. That's why. And that is grace. And so our whole attitude should flow from that. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom all exist. So, as to the eating of food offered to idols, here it comes up again. And it comes up in this issue of idolatry. So another word on this, what I, what I, what I want you to see here, is that Sometimes when we're trying to figure out where a text is going, it's good to get what other parts of the Bible say about said text. Right? That, that can keep you from proof texting. To try to get what the whole Bible says. Well, there were several parts in the Bible in Acts that told them that you cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols. In Revelation 2.20, when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, confronts them. Listen to this, Revelation 2, 20. I want you to see this and then you can wrestle with it. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Interesting how those two are connected. We've just been reading about those a bunch. We've, read, we've had a ton of sermons on sex and sexual immorality. Now we're talking about idolatry intertwined. Here in Revelation again, he's saying, he's saying, hey, he has that against you that you're eating food sacrificed to idols. So again, there seems to be this picture. There's even an early church document called the, the Didache or the, however you say it, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, I believe is what it is. It's a first or second century text and it said this, concerning food regulations... Bear what you are able. However, you must keep strictly away from meat that has been sacrificed to idols, for involvement with it involves worship of dead gods. So, that seems to be Paul's core here. That's prohibited. But then you kind of go, well, wait a second here. Idols don't even exist, that's all fake, just a piece of wood. Right? It's just, you know, you made this little thing and you're worshiping before it. That's true. Idols don't exist. Kind of affirming some of what the super spiritual ones think. Oh, that's true. They actually don't really exist. Because why? There's only one God. There's a good theological reason. We all believe that God is one. There's only one God. He's affirming what they believe. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Hmm. That's interesting. And again, you're going to have people divided on this issue. 
I'll tell you what I think I think. So, idols are fake. There is nothing in that piece of wood. All right? In the prophets, Isaiah, you you think this thing, you know, you actually made this with your hands. Give me a break. Okay? So, it doesn't exist. But, there are things behind idols that do exist that are real. So, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about demons, pagan deities. Okay, even sometimes the word gods can be used. And so, there is an understanding that there are realities, real realities behind idols, supernatural. Again, this cuts against our whole kind of scientific reducing everything to a material world that, that we live in. But he's saying, hey, according to the view of the Bible, supernatural beings exist. It's not just there's God and there's just creation, meaning human creation. There's also other deities in the sense of false deities, demons that exist in this world. And so, there are gods and lords. But what does he say in verse 6? Yet for us, there is one God. What that means is that God, the one God, has dethroned all other false gods, demons, deities that are out there in the world. Again, the Old Testament was had this all over the place when they would be involved in various... We read a ton of Leviticus a while back when we were dealing with all that. And so you had in the Old Testament all kinds of cultic activities toward false deities. But the good news of Jesus is He has crushed and defeated all of the other false demons and gods by the work of the cross. But it's still out there. That's that already not yet thing. That's that they are defeated, they will be defeated one day, completely cast into hell all the way. But their defeat is right now in that Jesus has already won. But participating with demons or demonic activity is always wrong for the Christian. And so for us, there is one God the Father, meaning He is the God of gods. He is the God of, He is the King of kings. He is the one who has conquered every other supernatural being that there is. And there's another Old Testament root of this. It's in Deuteronomy, and this goes two different ways. There's Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema, the fact that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One of the most basic texts that there is. And Paul's like, yep, that's what we believe. One God. One ruler over all other over all other rulers or authorities. Then, there's Deuteronomy 32. This is why this is all probably in Paul's head. And Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses and he identifies gods and demons together when participating in pagan rituals. Deuteronomy 32. I think it's after Numbers. Verses 15 to 7. Actually, I'm going to read this one from the NASB. But Jeshurun, that's Israel, also tied to Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You were grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. So Moses is singing, making a song. Israel, you grew fat, you kicked. You're kind of getting pompous. 
And what did you do? You forsook me. You forsook God. 16. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So this is a perennial problem for the people of God. Sometimes they want to go sacrifice to demons, to false gods. And that is always wrong. And so that's why this passage is tied to 1 Corinthians 10. I'm just going to read it. Some of you are probably like, wait a second, you're kind of jumping all over the place here. And And help me see this, so we need to hear this. This is 10, dealing with some of the same issue with sandwich between these, these idol issues is Paul defending his apostleship in number 9. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as dissensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one food. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offers to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So that's where he's getting all this from. Way back in Deuteronomy. The people of God tend to want to wander and to mix their allegiances and their lordships. And one way that they do that is in participating in food that is sacrificed to idols within temples and within sometimes normal everyday life and social engagements. And Paul's like, you don't get to do that. You cannot mix idolatry with Christianity. Why? Because God is one. Because there is one God and He has defeated and He has dethroned those idols. So back to number 8. Chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist. One God, the Father. Now this is when we dive into the wonder and complexity and beauty of the Trinity. He's speaking also to people who know that there was only one God. But what does He do in the next verse? talks about Jesus. Wait, but there was only one. But he identifies Jesus with God, the Lord. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. God, the Father, is the, is the originator of all things and He is the destiny for whom all things are pointing toward. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's the mediator. He is the agent And He's always the agent, the Father and the Son. There's always been a Son. So, we as Christians believe in one God. And right here, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. But we know it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one. But this is just a little snapshot of, for Paul, he's saying, wow, we are still monotheists. We still believe in one God, but Jesus is also Lord. He is God. He is the Son. He's always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. So he's saying your worship and your allegiances to Him, it cannot be to any other false deities anywhere. You cannot mix it at all because He has dethroned them. And so your allegiance is to be tied to Him and to Him alone. And also in Lord, in the Old Testament, would again just be another word for 
for God. I mean, when you kind of like capital L, Lord, is a big deal. And he's identifying Jesus with God. So that's what we as Christians believe. There is no debate around that. We don't tolerate any other view. We, don't, we aren't syncretists who bring things together and try to combine things like our age likes to. Kind of tolerate everything. We kind of piece everything together into what we really kind of want to worship. And the answer is no. Our allegiance is to one God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, he goes on, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. This word association has to do with habit, can be habituation. And that habits matter. That what we do with our bodies and our minds on a regular basis influence us. And that's why things like discipline and spiritual discipline like that are so important because we are formed by our habits for good or for bad. He's saying some through former association with idols, through, through habits, through just going about everyday life, sacrificing to them, eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Then he says food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So again, the issue isn't just the food. The food's kind of a non-issue. But it's how the food is being done. How it's being prepared in worship to a false god. That is the main problem. It isn't just the food. We're no worse off if we do not eat. No better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so here is him confronting directly these people that think that they are strong who want to say, hey, it's my right. You don't get to tell me what to do. You guys ever had that attitude in life or in culture or in the way in which you interact with people in your community? You don't get to tell me what to do. And Paul's like, eh, take care that this right of yours, this thing that you're flaunting, this freedom does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. One, one person put it this way. For the Corinthians, knowledge means rights to act in freedom. Thus, for them, freedom became the highest good since it led to the exaltation of the individual. For Paul, the opposite prevails. Love means the free giving up of one's rights for the sake of others. And life together in the community is the aim of salvation. So again, he's what I really want you to walk, from, walk away from most of all, even if you're kind of like, wow, this is, this is a whole lot. It is a lot. But what you need to walk away from is, he's going to say, okay, God, help me here. Where in my life do I put personal rights and freedom over loving other people? That's what Paul wants to get at. He's, he, he's, he's going deep into the heart right here. He's saying, hey, here's the big issue right here. All of your knowledge, all of your purported freedom, you got the wrong priority. And so that needs to kind of sit with us and say, Holy Spirit, help us see that in our own lives. Where might I, especially in our culture and our country, especially in certain political parties, where those kind of attitudes can rise to the forefront as the most important thing, and Paul is saying, no, it is not. 
Absolutely, it can be important, but it is not the main thing for the Christian. That attitude needs to be overthrown. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Again, this word encouraged is probably this attitude of that. The stronger saying, hey, you know what? Let me tell you all the freedom that we have. Let me encourage you with what you should really believe. And so I'm going to kind of flaunt it in front of you and you're actually going to be encouraged. You're going to be built up. It's like he's going the opposite direction. Hey, I'm the strong one. And my way of building you up is, hey, you don't have to worry about this. This is no big deal. You guys got to get your theology right. And that is not the case. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So again, the issue here for strong and weak is probably that the strong person is the elitist who's actually wrong and the weak person is not. The knowledge this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. And again, no matter which direction you might go in this passage, that, of course, is the heart. Is to see each other and other Christians, no matter what age, as brothers and sisters for whom the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself, laid down His life to save. And so that is the attitude. Do you see your brothers and your sisters as people for whom Jesus, the Lord of all creation, laid down His life for to rescue from their sins and to make His own? Do not raise knowledge or freedom to such a big deal that would destroy the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So he's saying, hey, you people out there who are wanting to do this, you're actually sinning against your brothers. You're sinning against them. And if you're like, well, big deal. They're just my brothers. He's like, no, you're sinning against Christ. So we're going to push it even farther. And of course, that's the way the whole Bible works. Remember when Paul, when he was confronted on the Damascus Road and you're persecuting me and the believers are tied to Jesus. So it's that you are, you are wounding the conscience of them. Now, a word on wounding. This is not offense. This is not just, oh, I'm so offended that I saw you doing that other thing over there at, at the restaurant. You know, or like, you know, kind of like the nice church, la- church lady is offended because that person did this, that, or the other thing. That's not what he's talking about. This is wounding. This is like hitting, beating the conscience. This is like striking. This isn't just a simple offense of somebody who really doesn't have any, isn't even worried about that issue in their own life themselves. But this is actually, no, the, what you have done here is causing your brothers to stumble, to make shipwreck of their faith. And so, do you see your brothers and your sisters as tied to the Lord Jesus Christ and that when you sin against them, you sin against Christ? So, it's not just some simple like, oh, I'm just so offended about what they did. It's that, it's that this kind of wound would put people back in idol worship at a temple. It's a big deal. It's not okay. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, this stumbling comes from a very intense text in Matthew 18. Another reason of why this isn't just talking about offense. This is talking about something much deeper. Matthew 18, this is from Jesus' words, where the same um, stumbling block is used. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Another one of Jesus' gentle words. So these little ones, this is, this, is, this is another way to read this weak, strong thing. It isn't, again, just the weak and strong like a debatable issue among the group, but probably strong as in you're kind of the arrogant, elitist ones and weak as in you're just the vulnerable ones. You're the little children. And so that's the kind of picture, the millstone, the stumbling block that would actually hurt the children, that would hurt the weak, that would hurt the brothers and sisters in the community. And Paul says, may it never be. I will never eat meat again. That's strong. It's never into eternity. I would never, ever do this to somebody lest I make my brother stumble. I would never be in a situation of where I'm going to push somebody back into idolatry. So, What are some things I want us to take away from this? First of all, knowledge isn't just a pathway to Christian maturity. Understanding the Bible, understanding theology, reading books, going down the whole list, having to be able to tick off every doctrinal checklist, which is important. But when we do that, sometimes we can get a little arrogant toward one another or toward other communities. He's like, no, the way of Christian maturity, what is known... Well, one is that God knows you. It's all divine initiative and divine grace. And that the way of Christian maturity is love. is the way you treat your brothers and your sisters in Christ. The, the way in which you might lay down your very rights. Which we're going to see a bunch of in 1 Corinthians 9. In Paul's attitude. And also that we have allegiance to one God. Again, in our culture, we say, well, we're not doing this. Yes, that's true. We're not necessarily doing this. But there's all kinds of mixtures that are happening in our culture and ways of looking at the world, ways of looking at life that are false, that are based on things that are false, that are not based upon what the book says. And so our allegiance needs to be to Jesus. So are you mixing different things that you should not be mixing? different views of the world, different views of humanity, different views of God. It's kind of like, it's not a big deal. He's like, there's one Lord, there's one King. Where, Christian, is your allegiance? And then, no matter where you go on this weak and strong issue, just what's your, what's your attitude? What's your attitude toward your brothers and sisters? Not, oh, are you so offended about something? But man, are there things that you are doing or pushing people toward that you should not be pushing them toward? Out of love 
and care for them. And so in communion, which is what this gets tied to later in 1 Corinthians 10, not so much here, he's just saying, hey, you don't get to share the cup of mixing other false demonic deities in Jesus. You don't get to do that when you come to the Lord's table. You come saying, as a reminder, Jesus, you're king. Jesus, you laid down your life to forgive me, a sinner, somebody who did not deserve your forgiveness. And you welcome everybody to that table. Former idolaters, former sexual immoral, you name it. That's everybody who makes up Christians. That's who they were. And so this table, this communion is welcome to everybody, but it's sober, it's serious. It's saying, hey, I, I am sharing in, I am participating in the body and the blood of Jesus. He is my allegiance. He is my God. He is my salvation, my forgiveness. He is the reason why I exist. And so it, it is sober. It's a sober celebration. And he is just reminding us, man, where is our attitudes toward people? Where are our allegiances? And so we take this meal remembering where it is. King Jesus. So let's do that.
Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah. 
suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my peace. Oh, the